0: Uh, Turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 20. Now, we are doing a sermon series in the book of John. I'm going to tell you, we're skipping all the way to the end of the book today. Why? Because this morning is Resurrection Sunday. What is this going to do for us as we study John? Well, it's going to spoil the whole thing. So this is a spoiler warning. You guys, do you like spoiler warnings? How many hate it when a movie gets spoiled for you? I am gonna tell you a few things. First of all, uh Bruce Willis's character, he's a ghost. Uh Thanos loses. There are three Spider-Mans, and Darth Vader is Luke's father. I've spoiled them all for you now. That's the vein of what we're about to do this morning. We're we're about to we're about to spoil it all. But It'll be different. We're studying through the book of John. We started in John chapter 1 three or four weeks ago, and I'd encourage you. There's so many people who tell me, Pastor Drew, I just don't feel like I know enough about the Bible. Like, I wish I just knew more of the Bible. I'm going to tell you the reason I've decided to crawl through the book of John is so that you can know the Bible, because we're not just teaching John. We're actually teaching the entire Bible through the book of John. And John is where a lot of scholars point to, to say, if you want to know the story of the Bible start with John. And so we're going through that. Now, if you'll walk with me over the next few months through John, by the time we get to the end of it, you will understand the entirety of the Bible. Maybe not every single verse. All right. I'm not saying you're going to be a Greek scholar or anything like that. That'd be nice though. Right. But I will say you'll have a great grasp on the entire Bible. And if you've missed out on some of our weeks, you can go back and, and find them on the podcast, or they're on YouTube now. Eddie's done a great job of uploading them. And you can go back, and you can work with us. We, we have handouts and study guides and things like this. We want you to know the Bible. The problem is we're in John chapter 1, but today we're in John chapter 20. And, and it, it'll come at you different. You're like, well, what happens when we get to John chapter 20 again? Well, it might take us till next Easter to get to John chapter 20, first of all. Second of all, it'll be different for you when we get there. Again, it's, it's kind of like this. Um, so Jackson, um, he's a great guy. Uh, he's moving to Arkansas here in a month and a half. And Jackson, he's eight years old. And we had to go to Walmart the other day and buy a weed eater for our new house. And so we buy the weed eater, and we're on our way home. And Jackson is a second grader, and he does that thing that when you tell him a joke, like he wants to explain the joke. Like when he tells a joke. It's funny because and you're like, no, no, you just you just laugh, right? You don't explain it. You just laugh, like a lot of little kids do, right? And so we were driving back to the house, and just me and him, I said, Hey Jackson, why why was six afraid of seven? Why? Because it's bigger? No. Because seven eight nine. He goes, seven eight nine. Seven, eight, nine. And he goes, oh, because eight. And then he looks at me and realizes that he's about displaying the joke, which I've taught him not to do. He goes, oh, it's because eight. Ha, 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 (laughs) ha. Oh, man, I lost it. I lost it. We get to the house, no kidding, we get to the house, we hop out, I said, hey buddy, go put some pants on so we can do some weed eating. He goes, okay, walks up the stairs, goes, ha 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 ha, disappears in the house, I don't see him for 10 minutes. I go in the house and find him, he's playing, I'm like, what are you doing? You're supposed to have pants on so we can weed eat. He goes, oh, I thought you were joking. (laughs) Hang on, hang on, I gotta show you something, hang on just a second, real quick. Here we go, here's this guy. That's him. That's him weed-eating right there. I was not joking. Um, he weeded, and he did a fantastic job. So if you see him, say, Jackson, I heard you're a great weed-eater. Anyway, that's kind of like what's happening here. There's a, there's a story. Maybe you know this riddle or this joke, and I'm going to break my own rule. I'm going to explain the joke, all right? There's a riddle that says a cowboy rides into town on Friday, and three days later he rides out of, to- out of town on Friday. How did he do it? He rides into town on Friday. Three days later, rides out of town on Friday. How did he do it? The horse's name was Friday. And so some of your brains are like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, I get it now, right? It connects. I said it the first time, it didn't mean anything to you. I say it the second time, and it connected. That's kind of like what's going to happen here with John. All right, that's that's a huge setup for this. We're going to go through John chapter 20, and it's going to mean something to you. It's going to mean the horse's name is Friday. Okay? And then we're going to go back to John chapter 2 again next week, and we're going to come all the way back up to it. And this time when you hear the punchline, you're like, oh, okay, I get it. You've explained the joke. And so, of course, this is no joke. We're going to turn here to John chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 1. Spoiler warning. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken from the tomb. So she ran. And went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said to them, they have, not t- or they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. Now let's pause for a second. First of all, when we see the, the, the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, we believe that's John, the one who's actually writing these words. What we have here is Mary Magdalene. Now, you might not know who Mary Magdalene is. Uh, we're going to study that in other sections of Scripture when we back up in John. But here's Mary. She is a lady who Jesus had cast seven demons out of. This woman had been bound we were talking a little bit ago about this testimony of someone who used to know Christ, and now they know Christ, and your life is changed when you know Christ. And this is a woman whose life had been completely changed by Jesus Christ. She had been tormented by seven demons for years. and When Jesus walked on the scene, she was completely free. And she loved him. We're going to find out here in a moment that she completely loved him. And she had just witnessed one of the most horrible things that she could have ever witnessed. She witnessed this good man, who had never done any wrong to any person, be put on trial for a crime he did not commit, for the multitudes to scream, crucify him, crucify him, to be nailed to a cross, tortured, persecuted, and, and killed. This is what this woman witnessed. And now, we were talking last night, me and the girls, can you imagine that Saturday night, the way she probably felt, the heaviness she probably felt, that Jesus had died? And walking to the tomb that morning, so many uh, different denominations of Christianity will have what they call a sunrise service on, on Easter Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, and it's because the first time people came to the tomb, it was before the sun ever came up. And here's Mary. She's walking to the tomb. And, and other um, accounts have other women with her as they, as they go. She's not alone. And as they go to the tomb, they find it empty. And she's not excited about this. Her heart is broken because she believes someone has stolen the body of Jesus. So she runs and tells Peter and John. Verse 3, so Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together. Guys, this is some intense news. You don't run unless you're like, what is going on? They're startled. They're frightened. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I love it here that John is proud enough of himself to say, I got there first, but humble enough to say, "Uh, I'm not gonna write my name down, right? Enough humility to not mention himself, but enough pride to say, it was me, I got there first. I was the first guy to see it. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but not did not go in. Then Simon Peter came. The, some scholars believe Peter was quite a bit older than John, so the old man finally caught up. <laughs> <laughs> then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the tomb uh, excuse me, saw the cloth lying there, and the faith's cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, he's just rubbing it in, also went in, and he saw and believed. He saw and believed. Now, there, there is a little bit debate on what he believed But most Christian scholars believe what he was believing was that Jesus was alive. And so, what does that make John? It makes John the first person to believe in the resurrection of Jesus without actually seeing Jesus himself. These men had followed Jesus for years, and they had seen him do miracle after miracle. They'd seen him heal the sick. They'd seen him feed the multitudes. They'd seen him raise the dead. And he was their hope. And, and if you've been with us the last few weeks, what we've learned is, is that the Jewish people at the time were under Roman oppression. Kind of like today, the, the Ukrainians are under the Russian oppression. And the Ukrainians would just love for, for a savior to rise up and defeat the Russians, right, and kick them out of their country. It was a very similar thing, but the Romans had already taken over their country at that point. Roman soldiers were roaming the streets, policing the area. They had a government installed that was over the Jewish government there. And these Jewish people were looking for a Savior. He hero to rise up and defeat the Romans, and these people believed Jesus was their guy. They were just waiting for him to do his thing they would ask him often like jesus is that when you're going to rise up and establish your kingdom when they were talking about a kingdom like when we talk about a kingdom we're talking about a spiritual kingdom but when they were talking about about a kingdom they were talking about an actual kingdom where jesus would be king like jesus when are you going to take care of these jokers they did not like the Romans. They, they hated them. Think, think about the way the world felt about the Nazis. They, they hated these guys. In the midst of this, the backdrop of this whole scene is they, they witnessed Jesus being taken away, arrested, and then flogged. That's what it says. If you back up to John chapter 19, it says that Jesus was flogged. Because they were hoping by just beating him, it would appease the crowds that were angry at Jesus. The religious leaders of the day were—they didn't like what Jesus was doing, so they stirred up the crowds to hate Jesus. And so they thought, well, if we just beat him half to death, then maybe that'll appease the the crowd. So here's Jesus with with skin and muscle hanging off his back, beaten, blood pouring down. They take a crown of thorns and they shove it into his head to mock him oh you're the king huh you're the king but it does not appease the crowd and so they end up sentencing him to death by crucifixion making him carry his own cross and they nail him to the cross and just just the amount of excruciating pain there would have been there. In fact, the word excruciating literally means out of the cross. Excruciating, the, the, the harshest word we have to describe something actually means out of the cross. And here is Jesus hanging naked, not, not with all the little pretty things we see when we see pictures of Jesus, but he's hanging naked, beaten, bleeding, on the cross and he cannot breathe and just to get a breath of air he has to push up on the nails and his feet so he can breathe but that puts pain into his feet so he relaxes down into his arms and as he relaxes down into his arms the the weight goes into his arms but what that does it keeps him from being able to breathe in fact to make sure that crucifixion victims were actually dead, what they would often do is break their legs so they could no longer push up on those nails, and then they would usually suffocate to death because they could no longer breathe as they hung on the cross. What Scripture tells us is that Jesus, though, his legs were not broken because the Old Testament said he would not be broken that way. What they ended up doing when they came to him, they said, well, he's already dead, so they stuck... A spear into his side. This is Jesus. His beard torn from his face. His back ripped to shreds. Naked, bloody, on the cross. And that's what these men witnessed. No one comes back from that. Nobody. It's insane to think someone could come back from that. Like even if he had lived through the experience, you'd think he'd still probably die eventually from all the wounds and the bleeding, especially without modern medicine. Nobody comes back from that. So when these men ran to the tomb, they did not expect to see a risen Savior. They were hoping to find a beaten body. Can you imagine that, where that's your hope? That your hope is like, we just want to find the beaten body. These men are completely hopeless. The, the, The person that was supposed to save them has died. In fact, Pilate, what he did to make it even worse, to mock them, he wrote king of the Jews and hung it on the top of the cross. And it made the Jewish people mad that were persecuting him. I'm like, no, 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 don't write king of the Jews, right? He said he was the king of the Jews. And he's like, I wrote what I wrote. He was just mocking Jesus. Here's the king of the Jews. Here's your hope. He's gone. And i I venture to guess this morning if, if I were to take time and sit down with you, that there's been a time in your life where you felt that complete hopelessness before. It's such a scary feeling, that, that feeling of complete hopelessness. Like, what is going to happen next? I don't know. It, it feels like groping through the dark. Like, can I find something? Like, like, you feel like you're about to fall off a ledge. Like, everything's just out of control. What am I going to do? We've all been there. It's been different things that have caused it. And the way you feel in that moment is exactly the way these disciples feel now. They've hidden themselves in a room because they're afraid that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them because they were his close followers. So they've locked themselves, hidden themselves in a room, and they, they find out in the early dawn of the morning. And I, I can't help but think the reason, part of the reason they went early in the morning was maybe no one will see us. If we go in the dark of the morning then, then maybe the Romans and the Jews maybe they won't identify us as followers of Jesus and they get to the tomb and it's empty It says in verse 9 they did not yet understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. And I would say for John, he believed that Jesus rose from the dead, maybe in that moment, but he didn't have good apologetics for it. He didn't understand from the scriptures about it yet. It says, then the disciples went back to their homes, but look at verse 11. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Why? Because her hope was gone. And as she wept, she stopped and looked into the tomb. She'd already looked at him once. She's looking again. Maybe I just didn't see him the first time. It says, though, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. One at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And just so you know, when they said woman, it's not like in our culture when we say woman. Like that's kind of offensive. They weren't being offensive, just want you to know, different culture. Woman, why are you weeping? And she said, they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing but didn't know that it was Jesus And this has always blown my mind for years because this is not the only time we see it happening, that the resurrected Jesus is standing in front of someone that knows him, and they don't recognize him, which is insane to me. Does he look different? What's going on? And I can tell you, my my best guess, my best reason why this happened is because there's no chance he should be alive. They saw him brutally murdered. And there he is standing there. It's so impossible. It's so impossible that you could stand right in front of you and you wouldn't recognize him. They're in shock. And Jesus said to her, Woman, once again, not offensive, Woman, why are you weeping? And if you're with us last week, you remember this phrase Whom are you seeking what are you looking for what are you looking for wasn't that the whole theme the first time jesus spoke he said what what are you seeking what are you seeking jesus first words in the book of john are almost his first words here after his resurrection what are you seeking and she thinks he's the gardener she says to him and listen to the desperation in this Steph and I were talking about this last night. Just listen to the ache in her heart as she cries out to this gardener. She thinks in the garden. She says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. She's saying, "If I just want his body. If you could just tell me where his body is, I will take it and take care of it for you. I just want to take care of this man who took such good care of me. This was her friend. This was like a family member to her. And now his body is missing. She's not looking for a resurrected Jesus. She's just looking for his body. And this is where it gets really, really, really good. Jesus looks at her and he says one thing. Mary. Like, he says her name. Mary. In the middle of her hopelessness. In the middle of her broken heart, he calls her name Mary. And she turns to him and she says, teacher. And Jesus says, don't, he says, don't cling to me because I haven't returned to the Father yet and all this, this stuff. But there's this excitement. There's this joy that happens in her heart when she finally sees him. And in verse 18, it says that she goes back and tells to the other disciples, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Can I tell you this morning, four in our house of prayer, in the middle of your hopelessness, in the middle of your darkest moment, the Lord is calling your name. He's calling your name. Now it's up to you what you do with that. She could have chose just to stay there in a, in a pull of her own misery and never looked up. Mary, I'm like, it's strange that this gardener knows my name. And ignored him and just, wallowed in her grief but she chose while she was kneeled there crying to look up at the man calling her name and when she looked at him it changed her life when she saw him it changed her life jesus is alive And it's so much, she couldn't keep this information to herself. What does she do? She runs full force back to the disciples and says, guess what? I have seen the Lord. That's what's crazy. When you've seen the Lord, you have to tell someone about it. That's why I love this testimony about RJ. Last Sunday, he saw the Lord. So what did he have to do this Sunday? Go get five of his friends and say, you have to come with me. I have seen the Lord. When you've seen the Lord, it changes you. You can't keep it inside. Jesus is so good verse 19 it says on the evening of that day the first day of the week the doors being locked by the disciples for fear of the Jews they were afraid for their life which makes it so more amazing that here in about seven or eight weeks they're going to be pouring out into the streets preaching Jesus here in seven eight weeks, it goes from we got to stay locked by in here because we're scared of the Jews, to Peter getting up and says, this Jesus who you crucified is Savior and Lord. That's a little bit different tone because Jesus changes you. It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now, I want you to, that's literally what he said. That's a cultural expression. Y'all, if Jesus appeared to us, he probably wouldn't say, peace be with you. Because you guys think it means peace be with you, some weird, creepy religious greeting. No, when he appeared to them, what he was saying is, hey, guys, it's okay. Just relax, chill. That's what he was saying to them in their language. It's, it's fine. Everything's fine. Because when someone just appears in the middle of the room out of nowhere, that's freaky. So when you're Jesus, you're like, well, It's fine. It's fine. Peace be with you. Yeah, very cool. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad. See cuz the first they weren't glad. First they were terrified. Now they're glad. They're glad when they what when they saw the Lord. There's something about seeing the Lord. I know I've preached on it three weeks now, but there's something about seeing the Lord. You're glad when you see the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. He's saying, it's going to be all right, guys. It's going to be all right. As the Father has sent me, even though I am sending you. What's funny in verse 24, it says that Thomas, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. Here's why you should never be late to church. Because here's the thing, what did Jesus do to the other disciples? He showed them his hands, he showed them his feet, and then they believed. Right? Isn't that what happened? They were freaked out, then he showed them his his hands and his feet, and then they believed. So let's see what happens to Thomas here. Says So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Guys, there's something about seeing the Lord. Have I said that yet? (laughs) But he said to them, unless I see his hands the marks of the nails, and place my fingers into the marks of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He didn't trust these guys. Eight days later, eight days later, his disciples were inside again. They're still locked up, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, What? It's going to be all right. Don't freak out, please. Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Can I tell you something? Jesus did not correct him. Some people say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. I'm going to tell you right now. Jesus absolutely did. Here is Thomas. He's saying, you're my Lord and you're my God. And Jesus just let it ride. Why? Because he is God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And can I, can I say this this morning? Like Thomas, he didn't ask for anything that the other disciples didn't get. What did the other disciples want? They put their hands and the nails in his hand and the, the pierced in his side. And then they believed. Thomas does the same thing just eight days later, and now we call him Doubting Thomas. Right? He wasn't asking for anything that the other disciples didn't already get. And I'll say it again. That's why you should never be late to church, because people come up with nicknames for you like Doubting Thomas. It wasn't that he was doubting. It's just that he was late. I guarantee you, Thomas wasn't doubting after that. His doubt just lasted eight days. There was an eight-day period of doubting, and that's his permanent name now, Doubting Thomas. That's rough. And here's, here's what I want us to look at, is, and this is really great that we are in the beginning parts of John. Because Steve and I were talking the other day about John, and uh, he reminded me of this right here. Why are we studying John? What's the purpose of the book of John? What's even the reason that it's there? Well, that's what we find right here in verse 30. Look at this. It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We just found out that Jesus said, blessed are you if you believe and you never see. But let me tell you, the reason John wrote this is so that you could believe in his name and you could have life today. Listen, we don't go to church so we can be better people. We don't go to church so that God will like us more. We don't study this word because we think we'll be smarter if we do so. The reason we go to church and we study this word is so that we can believe in his name, so we can have life in Jesus Christ. It's only about him. Can I get the worship team to join me? Whatever song you were going to do last, I'll let you do that one. I won't let you. I will ask you if you would do that one. I want to read to you something. This is written by Joni Erickson Tara. If you'll allow me to read this to you this morning, it, it spoke to me. I'm wrapping up here. It says, Happy resurrection day, the best of all days. Do you realize if someone were to ask you what's the most important thing you know? Right, I heard I heard a guy saying my seven year old asked me, Dad, what's the most important thing you know? And he thought for a second and said, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I deliver to you as in first importance that Jesus died, that he rose, and that he appeared. What's the most important thing I know? That Jesus died, that he rose, and that he appeared. This is the most important Christian holiday of all holidays. I know we really put a lot of stock into Christmas for some reason. But I can tell you, today is the day that's most important for us. You and I know Easter is not about bunnies and candy-filled eggs. But often we settle for an image of Easter that similarly misses the point. We think of Jesus surrounded by bluebirds and cherub-like children and with flowers springing up wherever he walks. We romanticize Jesus so much, we lose touch with the reality of the horrible, wonderful week leading up to his resurrection. The soul-slicing tears, the blood, gore, and agony of him becoming sin for us. But why do we prefer a sentimental picture? I think it's because a romanticized version of Christ's death and resurrection requires nothing from us, neither conviction nor commitment, but such a version lacks truth, it lacks power. Romantics, or I would say traditional Easterists maybe, try to color the resurrection with lilies and birds, while there is nothing wrong with enjoying the, the bloom of Easter lilies or the twittering birds of a sunrise service. There is so much more to the story. So for a moment, lay aside any gilded, sunshiny images about Easter and instead consider the facts. A man, ashen and gray and stone cold dead. I don't think I ever really wrapped my head around that before. Jesus was really, literally dead. Rigor mortis was setting in. He was He was gray. He literally rose from his slab and walked out of a grave. That's what Jesus did. His resurrection is proof that he satisfied the exacting demands of God's justice, destroyed the grip of Satan on our hearts, and secured for us a rich salvation that we simply do not deserve, that reality has power. It's a reality that grips you. Some people believe Jesus came to do nice, sweet things like turn bad people into good people. Not so. As someone once said, our Lord and Savior came to turn dead people into living ones. And there's nothing sentimental about that. God the Father planned it The Son endured it. The Spirit now applies it to us, applies to us every benefit from Christ's wondrous resurrection. So today erase any image of a syrupy, sweet Jesus you have nurtured about the Lord. Replace them with a heart-gripping picture of your powerful God who came and overcame the harshest foe death itself, to, to secure for us the certain promise of a relationship so deep and so intimate and so real with him that it meets every longing of your heart. This morning, Jesus is alive. He is alive. And if you put your faith and trust in him, he'll transform you. He'll open the eyes of your heart. He'll give you newness of life. The reality is the wages of sin is death. Every single one of us will die. It's a harsh reality. And the only man who lived a sinless life, he never had to die, yet he did. He took his sin, our sin, on him, and then was punished for our sin. And he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. This morning, Jesus is alive. This morning, Jesus is alive. This morning, Jesus is alive. I've never believed it more than I believe it right now in this moment. Jesus is alive. Friends, and He's coming again. Will you stand with me? Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? This morning, I'd say, If it's time for you to surrender your life to this Jesus, to give your life to this Jesus, I'm going to ask you to come up to this front and just let me pray with you. Ask yourself, do I know him? Not know about him, not know of him. Do you have a relationship with the risen Jesus? Do you know for sure? If there's any doubt in your heart this morning, I'm asking you to come. I'm asking you to come.